Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Lit Up. On this week's podcast episode, we have Lauren Metchling. Now, I have to premise that Lauren and I have been friends for a few years and we would meet at these publishing lunches that all the publishers have. And often I'd see her across the room and think she's so sophisticated and elegant. But it took a while for me to kind of be able to talk to her. However, once we did, I realized she's so warm and lovely and brilliant. She was an editor at Vogue for many years and still writes a lot of their books coverage. Um, She's written for the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times and the New Yorker. But we're here to talk about her novel, How Could She? It's that quintessential coming to New York tale about three women and their friendships with all that kind of fraught, um, sometimes snippiness that comes along when women are trying to navigate their lives and always in very different places. So I was lucky enough to be in Lauren's home for this in Brooklyn and we had this incredible view back towards the, the New York skyline. So imagine that when we're chatting and I hope you enjoy this episode. It's my great pleasure to be in my friend Lauren's house in Gowanus in Brooklyn. Um, it's a drizzly day, but the light is streaming into her home and Thank you so much for coming on the pod and having me over. Well, I wrote this book to have you over. (laughs) Thanks for coming. My pleasure. Now, we're here to talk about, it's not your debut novel, but it's your debut adult novel. And we'll get into write your other books as well. But why don't you read from the beginning of your, your adult novel, How Could She? And then we'll launch into the convo. With pleasure. Okay, this is the very beginning of the book, and it's a letter from one of the characters that she sends to all of her close friends. December 23rd, 2016, New York City. Dear friends near and far, after a beautiful eight-year streak, my annual holiday card shame walks its way back onto the scene as a New Year's card. Things have been crazier than usual these past few months, and the election certainly didn't help matters. I'm writing this a few days before Christmas. You'll have to take my word. I like imagining all of you in the not-too-distant future, holding my message in your hands. The winter flower watercolors are the individual part. I focused on each of you as I painted yours, so that love had better come through. Goodness knows we all need it more than ever. On to the annual report, the one you won't find in the newspaper. The year got off to a rough start with my mother's skiing accident. Once we knew she was going to be able to walk again, it was nice to have an excuse to hang out at my parents' home, but we were all shaken up for a little while there, and I couldn't be more grateful to all of you who helped us through it. The phone calls, the overnighted cookies, the amazing Sylvia Plath poems screen printed onto a pillowcase by a particularly superheroish one of you. Mom loved it all. She's been diligent about her physical therapy and is determined to get back on the slope soon. 
my parents are talking about a trip to Chile next summer. And after two years of nomadic life, Nick and I are finally moved into the townhouse that Nick's owned forever but never really dealt with. We left our Chelsea sublet in June and the renovations went all the way through the fall. So after several months of living on the run, out on the North Fork and a few weeks at Nick's friend's Fernando's house in Mallorca, so don't think I'm complaining, we're only starting to settle into our home. It's funny seeing our furniture mixed up together and trying to get along in the space that has always been starkly, mid-centurishly, his. My studio is on the top floor, with a ceiling that slopes so low I have to duck my head when I reach over to change the radio station. The window overlooks a courtyard where an old greyhound naps all day long. I have a dog bed for Stanley, so he hangs out up there with me. It's my new favorite place on earth. Nick has been working on a hostel project and a few other things, mostly in Berlin. So when we see each other, it can feel as if we're on a date. Sometimes it's more like we have dementia. It's impossible to keep track of anything when somebody is a ghost most of the time. He's finally given into my prodding and gotten back into tennis. After what I will admit was a promiscuous spring with work in magazines and galleries, I've just agreed to the sweetest invitation to participate in a group show about the cold at the Brooklyn Public Library. Being Canadian and all, I suspect they want me to contribute a couple of paintings of infinite tundras, but I'm not in a chilly state of mind. I've been busy making watercolors of snowflakes and snow cones in all sorts of psychedelic colors, sort of like the paintings I'm sending you. Those of you who live in town, come to the opening on February 14th. Yes, I know. And I'll feed you banana bread and cream or possibly a gingerbread snow castle like the ones I made in grammar school. If you're in the faraway club, please know I love and miss you dearly, and I'd be honored to save a piece of castle just for you. Here's to a safe and not too surreal 2017. Love, Sunny. P.S. Geraldine, if you're planning on visiting New York anytime soon, come to the opening. I'm sure Gus will be there. XXXXX. Thank you. What an opening. I feel that we get a sense of... I mean, she sounds so entitled, Sunny. Was that insufferable? Part of it? Might be the word. Yeah, insufferable, entitled, lucky, very lucky. I mean, I want her life if I could have some of it <laughs> without the maybe um, obliviousness. She's also Canadian, and can you talk about? Being from Toronto yourself and this push and pull between New York and Toronto plays a big part in the book and between these friends. Was that something that you have dealt with? Well, I'm not from Toronto. I'm from New York, but I've lived in Toronto for a chapter in my life, in my 20s. And I suppose I thought it was a great dramatic way to set up the difficulty of New York for everybody and there's the three women in the book are all spinning their wheels and they're all haunted by this fear that they're not going to be able to make it in New York and that they're going to have to you know, be banished back to Toronto where they all started. And I feel that, you know, the city has become pretty impossible for everybody across the spectrum. And so this was a way to explore the challenges and the sacrifices and the idiotic things that people put up with in order to live in New York. What was your chapter in Toronto about? So I was 
in New York as a very, very, very young adult. After I graduated college, I came to New York determined to be a writer. And I got a job at a newspaper, the New York Observer, back when it was still a print newspaper, salmon colored. And I was the assistant to the editor in chief, which for me was essentially answering a telephone and wanting so badly to be like the reporters around me who were getting scoops and writing the most hilarious lines. And I, one of, I became friends with one of the, you know, fabulous, there was this woman who seemed so old and cool. She was probably four years older than I am. And she had advised that if I actually wanted to get a foot in the door in writing, I should look into places outside of New York. And so I found there was a new newspaper in Canada, which is where my mother's from and where I spent a lot of time. And I wrote them a letter asking to be an intern. And I ended up going to Toronto for the summer. And then I stayed there for a few years and was able to write and write and write and write. And then what was the job that you got that brought you back to New York? There was no job. I actually came back to New York for reasons similar to the women in this book, which was a terror of getting sucked in to the ease of Toronto. And I was a little older than 25, I think, maybe it was 25, but I felt like the people around me were actual adults. I mean, they were my age, but they seemed to be living these very committed adult lives. And there was no way that they were going to be, you know, moving away after they had their homes and their dogs and their partners. And I just feared that that would be me in who knows how quick a time. And I really wanted to be back in New York, which is where I grew up. So I finally came back with nothing, but you know, several newspaper clips. Did you stay with friends or what was your situation back here? Because I feel it's interesting. I'm in New York now and I'm staying with friends. And it's so interesting when you have to ask friends if you can stay. And it's also, you understand how stressful it is for people because New York is so stressful in itself. The home, these small homes people have, are their sanctuary. And so I know when I've been here and people have asked to come and stay, it can either bring up a terror in of its own going, how will I cope with this person? Or it's someone who's easy. But did you impose yourself on people? I suppose I imposed myself on my parents. Oh, that's so great. It was very, it was very easy. Um, and then I found a friend who was also coming to town and we we found an apartment together. And then, so your own journey into journalism. So you had these clips. Mm -hmm. What was the first job you got back in New York? Was it in magazines or back at papers? It was at a newspaper. It was a newspaper called the New York Sun that was exclusively staffed by people who were 25 and under. And I sent the editor-in-chief my clips and I think they were excited by somebody who had written for a newspaper before. Most people who were working there were coming straight out of college. So I guess I, my favorite character in the book is Geraldine out of the three. Was that 
is she meant to be the one that we like the most? No, we are meant to really? like all of them the most at different points in the book, but I do think she is the heart and soul of the book. I think Geraldine is easy to love from day one. And as she becomes more cunning and as she, as her narrative surprises us, we're along for the ride and we're meant to take great pleasure in that. And then other characters, I hope, charm their way slowly. I, I came to love the other two characters and I think people are rooting for all of them by the end. But Definitely. it is funny, people, that is the first thing that my friends who've read the book say, which I'm so happy about. They'll, they immediately just talk about the three women and which one of them they identify with and then who they identify the other ones with because everyone has people in their lives who are a Geraldine, who are a Sunny, who are a Rachel. We get a sense from who Sunny is from that letter and we know she's yes. an artist and she's obviously... She has the Midas touch. Yes. It's almost a mystery what she does because she's just somebody who people want to be associated with. I think what she does is be Sunny. You know, she's mm. a, an artist and she is a collaborator and she, but she's really a master of winning, at least in the beginning of the story. She's somebody who's figured it out, who's married well, who doesn't have to worry about money, who can be creative and work on her own terms and who has this aura around her that attracts people and brings people close to her and yet she doesn't have to engage on any terms that she doesn't want to engage with and that people come to her and I think she can be as generous or as distant as she feels like and people put up with that. I think that's what struck me so much about the book is how in certain friendships there's a power dynamic often that we don't... Always. Yeah, I guess yeah. you're right. I mean, yeah. in every relationship really, but particularly in, well, I guess in, yeah. in close female friendships and sometimes there isn't and that's right. kind of a, there's such an ease to some great friendships. Well, the thing that I find fascinating about friendships is that the, I find the power dynamic is, I would say, always unequal to some degree. There's always somebody who wants more, who wants something different from the relationship. And the other thing that gets thrown into the mix is that people's own circumstances change very quickly. So once you and a friend hit on something that's working, it's not, it's not meant to last for very long because you will, the two of you will not, you're both, friendship is a very unstable compound and the, the two ingredients are always changing into people with different needs and different wants and different musts. And so a friendship has to adapt along with the trajectories of the two people in it. And it's very, very hard for all those three things to evolve in tandem in a way that's to everyone's satisfaction. And so I don't think it's giving away too much to say that when we meet Geraldine, she's um, just come off a, a broken engagement. Well, not just. It's four years it's old. It's four years, four years ago. She can't seem to get over it. She is in bed. People sometimes wonder if she's okay, <laughs> if she's still breathing. People are very worried about her. And that's her role, 
to be the person who people worry about and love and wish the best for and wish that she had the life that she deserved because she's underserved by her circumstances, right? And then as she starts to engineer changes in her life for the better, people actually have a more complicated relationship with that than perhaps they would be proud to. Yeah, don't you think sometimes people enjoy having that friend that they can commiserate about with other friends? They're like, oh, that poor, our poor friend, what are we going to do to help her? Right, and I think people, it's not something that the other two women in the book are dealing with in the beginning of the story where they they do want to help her, but not too much. And there's this element of taking stock of all of your resources and how helpful and kind you can be to a friend and holding something back because, you know, God forbid your friend will outpace you. And the thing I was thinking about as I was working on the book, you know, it's, it's really about how time, you know, a friendship is an X, Y coordinate and then time comes in and then it just makes it this three-dimensional mess in the sense that the three women, Sunny, Rachel, and Geraldine, start out as essentially circumstantial friends. They work together. They're in their 20s. They're basically living in an office and they stand shoulder to shoulder, more or less, in that none of them has so much and none of them has so little. And what happens when we find them through the main story, which begins with that letter and goes through the course of one calendar year is they have ended up on incredibly, incredibly different stations in life. And that's something that always fascinates me that, you know, just changes with people over time. And the idea, I think the friendships we make tend to be with peers, but what happens when somebody who you are already devoted to and have already committed to as taking into your friendship family does fall through the cracks or does you know does the opposite and just becomes this big shiny phenomenon and how do you how do you navigate your relationship when there's suddenly all of these very obvious differences and these points where two people can't really relate to being alive you know people's two people's realities become so different that it's hard to understand each other And it's really hard, I think, to not pass judgment on each other. I think it's extra difficult when the people are people who you knew before and you already have them figured out or so you think. I think we are, as humans, terrible at digesting and accepting nuance and change. And I think we like to feel like we have our finger on the heart and soul of a person and it's I think it's very hard for us to adapt to somebody else's changes. The women are definitely the centerpiece and core of this this novel, yet they all have men in their lives and their relationships are in various states of health and disarray. Were these men always periphery characters? Always. They I think I find women more interesting than I find men. I always have. And I had no interest in trying to bring the men up to the same level that the women were in the drafts of my novel. I really wanted to focus on the complexities of women themselves and between women. And the men were 
really off to the sides in the book. Yes, my my editor says that she can't think of a book that passes the Bechtel test to this degree. Yes, this is not a this is not a book about women and men. And that doesn't interest me so much. What books have you read that you've loved that have kind of put this magnifying glass on women's relationships in this way? I love Zoe Heller's book, What Was She Thinking? Notes on a Scandal, which is about a very strange friendship between a school, well, between two school teachers, but one of them is very, um, you know, entitled and posh and younger and she makes pottery. And then the other one is essentially a, you know, an, an older discarded or disregarded member of the school community, but who becomes obsessed with her younger colleague, especially when her younger colleague finds herself in a very vulnerable position. And that's a book that I can't stop giving to other people. I love Anita Bruckner, I think, writes really well about the ways that women insert themselves in each other's lives and the ways that the women who we're close to offer us reflections back of our dreams and our beliefs and that these reflections can often be disturbing and can influence us to to make change. I don't I don't think romantic, you know, I'm a heterosexual woman. I don't think romantic relationships do this as much as our friendships. We tend to compare ourselves to our friends and that often offers up realizations about ourselves that can make us feel all sorts of things. Oh, of course. It's that moment when a friend says they're engaged or pregnant or getting married. I'm so happy for you. And... It's so interesting when the feelings are genuinely of of happiness for these people or and it's I found it's usually not an ick feeling but sometimes you think it's just hard you try to be the bigger person and not analyze where you are in life. Right. But and it's I think, impossible not to. Well, and I think it's messed up that we're not supposed to do that. And that's something that I really wanted to bring to light and lift the veil on in this book. I think there's so much that we repress in our friendships. And I think we're conditioned to behave in a certain way and to not look at how our friends' circumstances reflect our own. But in fact, that's completely dishonest. And I don't think anybody, I don't think even two of the closest, dearest friends who have the least stormy relationship I don't think that an element of um, you know, complexity is not existent. And I think it's important for us to be aware of that and be okay with that. Even if it's not the most beautiful thing or the thing we're the most proud of, I think it's hurtful to, and damaging to not give it a little bit of space in our heads and our hearts. In the book, Geraldine, who doesn't have kids, sees um, Rachel with her child, Chloe. And it's such a lovely relationship. And I think when you don't have kids and you see a mum with their children and in their family, it, depending on how resilient you're feeling that day, it can just hit you in different 
parts. Like you can feel sad that you don't have that, or you can feel relieved that you don't have to deal with the screeching child in that moment. But sometimes you can say the wrong thing and hurt someone. But I've had this experience where I've just felt like I'm trying my best to accommodate and be kind to you and your kid. And I'm I I don't know what it's like to be a parent. So give me a break. What was that dynamic? Because it's an interesting one when friends have kids and the others don't. And in the book, Sunny doesn't have a child and wants a child. Wants one. And Geraldine, that's not really a big part of no. her. And that's a funny thing. I think that Rachel is so careful around Geraldine. I think she sort of overcompensates for the sense that she's hurting Geraldine's feelings by being a mother. But I think in fact, as the book develops, I think Rachel becomes more and more aware of how satisfied (laughs) Geraldine is and how interesting her life is. And there's a scene where the two of them haven't seen each other in a while. And then Rachel makes a plan with Geraldine and perhaps it was some sort of subconscious microaggression, but she suggests that their get-together should be at the playground at a kid's birthday party. So Geraldine's going to show up and just be surrounded by all of these Brooklyn parents and their screeching children. And so this happens, but then from uh, what ends up happening is that Rachel comes to feel like an animal in the zoo she's sort of trapped in the tot lot as she's looking out across the park at Geraldine having a animated conversation with one of the most interesting women from Rachel's past and she watches a friendship forming you know too many feet away for her to hear what they're talking about so I think there's always a you know especially in a park there's a, a grass is always greener element or I don't think I think it's so easy to to crave that which you don't have. And I think it's ridiculous to think that there's a certain way that life should look at a certain age, you know? And I think that's, you know, I think maybe Rachel has come to feel a little smug about a few of the things that are working out for her and that she has her, you know, her nice husband who studies zebrafish at a lab at Columbia and she has her beautiful daughter. But there is an opportunity cost associated with everything, including being happy on a domestic front. How do you think motherhood changes female friendships? I wish I could say how it changes female friendships. All I can say is that it does and that it's different in every single friendship. And I think that especially in the very beginning of motherhood, when it's a shock to both people in the friendship, um, I think there's a lot of overcompensation that happens, a lot of enthusiasm over the mother, the new mother, and a lot of sort of nervous energy and an attempt to erase the reality on behalf of the new mother. And then I think it becomes more natural and settled in that I think some of my friends are into my family life and my kids and some of them aren't. And I just, I try to understand the way each dynamic is and accommodate that. So I have friends who I don't really talk about my kids with. And I have friends who want to talk about my kids more than I really 
am interested in? The magazine world is something that comes so vividly alive in this book and the kind of cataclysmic changes that media is going through. Why was it important to capture that moment in time? I think my choice of using the media world was not so much that I wanted to expose the truth of what's happening in magazines. I mean, a lot of it was, at the time of writing it, rather satirical and for my own amusement. But I was really interested in a sense, a general sense of instability and of these three characters' difficulty in feeling rooted to a present tense and feeling satisfied. And the magazine world lent itself to that general feeling in that, you know, the the floor is constantly falling out from under in print media as someone who's been in it for decades now. Where are all the magazines you've worked? I've only, I've only worked at one magazine. I worked at Vogue. I came up at newspapers and I worked at the Wall Street Journal for seven years. Was it crime particularly? Or no, no I've, I was, was a, a crime reporter for maybe three weeks at the oh. New York Sun when I was a baby. But when I was at the Wall Street Journal, I was doing magazine-y features. So I was working on two sections. One was the review section, and then one was called Off Duty and is called Off Duty. And I also worked as a culture editor on the now sadly departed arena art section. But I did work on a lot of stories that might feel familiar to the stories we read about at Cassette, the fictional magazine, in that they were about style and cool things to buy for your home so that you could indicate that you were a more enlightened individual than people who don't have those cool things. I mean, essentially, that's what these magazines are all about, isn't it? Something that I noticed in my time in media that I found interesting was the rise of the tribe, these tastemakers. I don't think the tastemaker women, because they're mostly women, existed when I started out, which was around the turn of the millennium. But maybe with the rise of, I don't know, like Lucky Magazine and such, there suddenly became people whose main job was to be cool and to know where to buy cool things. And that was how they made their money by showing people who, who didn't have such good taste. Here are my favorite napkin holders and here's where I go shopping in Savannah. And here's how you can, you know, go on the internet and pretend you went shopping in Savannah. And those, that job kind of dried up in the last, you know, in the Instagram era because Nobody is now making a salary being the arbiter of taste. Well, I was actually with a friend last night and we were talking about the late discovery of finding out that most women that work in magazines uh, have partners that can in some way help support them. And it was this thing that as a young woman in magazines from the outside, I didn't realise that you weren't paid enough at magazines really to have that anxious tummy go away, barely. Right. And I think the industry once upon a time supported the creation of these 
illusions. I think once upon a time, if you worked in a magazine, it was easy to present yourself as leading a fabulous life in the sense that there was, you know, unlimited access to, you know, cars and to clothing, even if you had to return it and such. And I think now in a more bare bones economy, the the charade is harder to pull off. You did a great New Yorker piece recently about using virtual reality to help overcome a fear of public speaking. And you that was prompted by this book tour that you have coming up and the book you're speaking about now. I'm wondering what was that experience like and has it helped? I thought it was incredibly helpful. Working in media and especially at magazines, I came to be painfully aware of how bad I was at speaking in front of a, let's say, table of eyeballs staring at me or a conference room of people looking at me. And a few months before the book came out, I got to travel up and down the East Coast and meet with rooms of booksellers who I'd never met before and pitch my book and explain to them what it's about in a nutshell. And I was totally terrified that I would have an out-of-body experience, that I would just look at everybody in the room. And I remember in the past having to talk to a group of people. And I remember the, the swishing and the sounds of swishing in my head. And I remember feeling my face turning all sorts of horrible colors. And I remember people looking at me and looking totally horrified and you could see the sympathy in their eyes for what was coming over me. And then the most disturbing part of that would be after I would have panic attacks while presenting ideas, I would try to talk to my friends about that. And they, they didn't notice. They, and I believe them because then there were other times when I would present ideas and I thought it had gone okay. And people afterwards would say, gosh, you know, we need to we need to help you or you might need to see somebody and in any event I found a virtual reality program that is amazing there's a, a whole gamut of virtual reality programs geared for every single phobia so there's one where if you have you know a phobia of heights it lands you on rooftops and you look down and you can adjust how many heights I'm mean, sorry how many stories up you are in the air and you know there's ones for um, spiders there's there's a very cool one. I'm not sure who suffers a fear of being at the bottom of the ocean, but there's a very cool one that deposits you on a shipwreck at the bottom of the ocean and you just stand there and make eye contact with these, you know, these sea creatures coming by, like whales and there's starfish floating around and it's the most phenomenal thing. But I found one for addressing crowds of strangers and it was... Terrific. I'm, we're in the, I was in this very room for many days with goggles on, just staring out at different bland hotel conference rooms or office rooms in unnamed mysterious cities. And the people were three-dimensional and they were so unmoved by me. It was terrific. They were looking at their watches and their phones and they were coughing and they were... St- completely, they were not going to buy my book. And it was so helpful to try over and over and over again to tell them that my book is about the trouble with female friendship. (laughs) And I actually, the great thing was that by the time I went and talked to real people, 
the the real people were not looking at their they were very polite and I think I could have recited a soup recipe and they would have been so nice because they were so nice that's brilliant I love that I'm so glad I found that program you write for the New Yorker quite a bit now however there was one piece that happened after you left Vogue about you can say it the after I was laid off no. Yeah. Well, like yes. so many of us have yes. all had happened to us. Um, but the piece was specifically about clogs. And these were the shoes that you embraced wholeheartedly after this pretty traumatic work event. Can you talk about the genesis of that piece and why and what the clog represents for you? Yes. Well, you say it's a world I embraced and I will explain how it's a world that embraces me Ooh. continually in new ways. It's the clogs have saved me. So one of the things about working at a magazine with very well-dressed people, if you drop children off at school before, is you wear your sneakers, kind of like Melanie Griffith in Working Girl, and you know do your morning school run, get to work, get to your desk, and put on your shoes and I wore high heels around the office. And when I was let go, I was stunned. I was shaking. I didn't know who I was. It took me a long time to feel grounded again. And I needed something tangible and specific to wrap all of my anxiety around. And the one thing I could think of was, okay, well, if I can't be the magazine person, I'm going to be a clog person. I'm going to be one of those people of mysterious means who have mysterious activities keeping them busy all day, who I see floating around Brooklyn in their mysteriously shapeless but probably expensive dresses. I'm going to buy a pair of clogs and they are going to be my new armor in this new uncertain life. So in the piece I wove my personal tale of misery and terror into the history of the clog and the current state of the clog, which was one of those under your nose things. You know, it was, everyone was wearing them, but I don't think it had gotten such loving scrutiny to that point. And so it was one of, it's, it was one of those stories where when people read it, I think, A, they were a little titillated and scandalized by my personal story, but they also related to the clog in that a clog is a shoe that everyone has very strong feelings about. People love a clog or as some of my close friends have finally confessed to me, they just can't get behind a clog and it brings up a lot of bad feelings for them. Have those friends tried them, tried to wear them? I'm sure they have because they're very fashionable friends and I don't think any fashionable woman has not explored the clog life. But I ended up starting an Instagram account that keeps me sane. It's going on you know, two years now, but I'd say every day I post a picture, generally pictures that followers send to me of you know, their clogs or they'll spot a clog in a documentary about war Germany in wartime and they'll send me this picture or there's 
you know, sometimes it's clog news. Sometimes clog designers will send me, you know, here's the wedding clog that we're about to come out with. And for some reason, it continues to crack me up and make me happy. I think so many of us have had a shock like that, a mm-hmm. work shock where particularly if you're very tied to your work in terms of you enjoy that identity that it brings you, which I'm assuming, you know, working at Vogue, it's very prestigious. Yeah, it was and very I, exciting. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot comes with it. But what was that transition like? I think the onus was on me to reinvent myself. And I think when circumstances in your life stay the same, such as having the same job or, you know, being in the same relationship for a while, it's easy to justify a kind of day by day, but lack of true growth. And suddenly I was set free and I could have done anything I wanted. And I was overwhelmed by the infinite possibility that that meant. I was a little scared that I didn't have it in me to grow with this change and to to find a new existence that I felt proud of and that made me happy. Now, two years later, you have a book coming out and you've written for all these fabulous places. Have you found that you're interested in certain things that you didn't realize you were interested in before, even in terms of the stories you pitch, what you might want to spend a week researching, those kind of things? Well, I feel lucky in that I have all this time to spend researching anything. I don't have a beat. I've never really had a particular thing that I only wanted to write about, but I'm able to pivot and to go from spending a few weeks just learning all about virtual reality to I write about books for Vogue and I'm able to spend entire days you know, draped across various pieces of furniture in my home and then, you know, go to my writing space and continue. I'm able to read books straight through that I wouldn't have been able to do had I been editing pieces by other people. I feel very lucky that things are the way they are right now. We haven't talked about the fact that Geraldine is a podcaster and a podhead and that you suffer from insomnia as well and that podcasts were your way to help quell that anxiety. Are you still a podhead and is it still Uh, helping? Yes. Last night, last night I branched out from my typical offerings and I discovered Ikea has a podcast for insomniacs. It's called Ikea Sleep or Sleep Ikea. And the whole point of the podcast is a Swedish employee reads through the company catalog and it is, it's a very ASMR soothing exercise. I did not fall asleep though. So then I listened to several other podcasts in the middle of the night. But when I started loving podcasts, I was um, not an insomniac. It was in my, I was in my, let's see, I can tell you the year. It was in 2005 because I remember reading on Slate about this new experiment they had. They were launching a podcast and it was this thing that you downloaded onto your computer and then you stuck wires in and then it would zook, you know, sick, suck up onto your iPod and then you could play it on your iPod while you went walking around the neighborhood. And at the time it really spoke to me literally and 
in other ways because I was working as a writer from home alone all the time and suddenly I had these very, very witty, brilliant, conversational partners and I didn't even have to put in any effort because they were just talking around me and I could listen. And I've been listening to podcasts ever since and when I started working on the book and I decided that podcasts were going to be a very instrumental tool for one of the characters to push her way into a, a new existence and change her life. I think they were, they were more of a niche interest. None of my friends were also listening to podcasts and I would also often you know, have to pull out my gadgets and show them, look, you know, here's where I have songs and here is where I have pictures stored and here, look, podcasts and you can you know, listen to these shows. And I lucked out in that the world of podcasts has obviously exploded and now every single mainstream company is looking to podcasts as the great new thing. So I think there's an element of realism to the story that wasn't actually there when I was imagining it. You're an early adopter. So this is your trend spotting skills. Oh, yes. You're a tastemaker. I'm a tastemaker. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> So on that note, let's end with what are the three podcasts you're loving right now? So I don't tend to listen to that many of the beautifully produced narrative podcasts. I'm more of a, you know, a conversational podcast lover. So I, I love the podcasts that have characters who I have come to know and who I, whose opinions I can predict or think I can predict and who I imagine to be my friends. So one that I love is called This Week in Nope, which is hilarious. And it's a, a pair of cousins, Rachel Dodes and Brian Hecht. And the two of them go through essentially the craziest headlines from the Daily Mail or the New York Post, and they catch me up on the despicable. So on new animals that people are traveling with on airplanes. Um, there's, often, there's a lot of animals actually, or you know, rats that are going viral, pole dancing in the subway system. That's something I, I love. I have come to love a beauty podcast called Fat Mascara because I, um, totally, I totally wish I could insert myself in the friendship between the two hosts, Jessica Matlin and Jen Goldstein. And... I'm completely besotted with this show and they interview people from the fragrance or beauty world or hair world. And the people who come on the show are just the most outrageous characters who have the best stories to tell. And it doesn't feel like people coming on to plug, you know, a television show like a lot of podcasts are. This is just, they've, these two women have tracked down these elusive, you know, magnificent, um, you know, superstars. And Who Weekly is another podcast that even though it comes out so often, I do not tire of it. It's a podcast also, two friends, Bobby Finger and Lindsay Weber. And they discuss the world of B, C, D, E-list celebrities. Thank you so much for being on the pod. We've ah. wanted to do this and you've now written the book. Finally. Just so you could come on. Thank you so much. It was worth it. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode with Lauren as much as I did. I think one of the big takeaways is that we can use these kind of life moments that feel like a crisis point and often that's where the best writing can begin. And I know that the evolution of Lauren's clog kind of empire is still ongoing, but the writing really was a place of pouring in all those questions and kind of longings and trying to ask what the future is about. So please let me know what you think. She'd love to know as well. You can leave a comment at Lit Up Show on Instagram and Twitter. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.